Hello, and welcome to Life Report. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Nathan, Yustan, and Alexa. With democracy still maturing in Ukraine, how is the country looking to reform its parliamentary structure? In this episode, we look at Zelensky's proposal to shrink the membership of the Vahovna Rada, as well as the recent sanctions on pro-Russian propaganda. This and more on Zakhardonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukraine. So Zelensky has been moving to implement another key aspect of his political platform, and that is to shrink Ukraine's parliament to 300 deputies from its current 450. Um, what do you guys think of that? It wouldn't be like the first time it's happened. Italy, in a referendum on the 21st of September 2020, um, they asked if uh, parliament should be reduced from 630 to 400 in the chamber of deputies and from 315 to 200 in the Senate. And it had an overall approval of 69.96% in favor. So in their next uh, general election, they're going to have these reduced uh, deputies in parliament. And I think the same is for Hungary as well. I always thought that if you had more representation in um, politics, it was better for the country. Yeah, more democratic, I guess, or more yeah. voices are heard from different regions. Yeah, that's what I always thought. So, I that's why I thought having or keeping the number that's – or keeping a number that is representative of uh, most of the country or most of the regions would be better because then – but wouldn't that mean that the regions would then merge or expand? But then I guess the other side of that, I mean, the other side of the coin is that having a large legislature – also requires a lot more money, a lot more paid MPs, a lot more paid staff and support staff, a lot more money when it comes to elections. So I think that there is an argument to be had for some balance. Well, in Italy, I think uh, I think it's 57 or 53 million euros is saved uh, by reducing their parliament down. So it's quite a lot of money that they're going to be saving. I feel it's a very populist measure because, you know, everyone can always get around in hating politicians. And so it's an easy way to pick up popularity points because you're like look at me like i went against the establishment and like shrunk it down to size but i think i think that's very much a reagan-esque sort of style you know the the (laughs) problem is the government the big government but i mean the other question then becomes if they if they are reducing the size so that so that is successful no doubt there has to be a little bit of monitoring of what happens to the different electoral regions once you bring that down because no doubt as politicians are politicians they'll try and craft them in a way that you know favours their particular parties in power. Yeah. Uh, well, Ukraine has the... Um, well, their next election is meant to be held under the proportional representation system. So, be interesting to see how it turns out if this proposal goes through. But I have, I have my doubts. Yeah. So, when looking at whether the people support it, uh, Zelensky's unofficial poll that he did last year... During before- the local elections... He's like, yeah, last year, yeah. Uh, 90% of the respondents actually supported this proposal of reducing um, the parliament. And we actually held their own poll. And out of our respondents, 64% actually said no and thought it was a, um, a bad idea. So, I think that's a very interesting perspective from like what you're seeing in Ukraina versus maybe what like diaspora people might think. Um, but also in 2000, there was a referendum held and they proposed uh, like curbing the power of parliament. And again, it was 90% of the voters in that referendum 
agreed with shrinking the parliament. So it seems like this is a long-standing, um, not just issue, but the, the the popularity of shrinking parliament. Ukraine has been long-standing, and looks like now it's probably going to happen. But what's funny is that same referendum also voted over like ninety percent to create a bicameral legislature in Ukraine. So I think. In general terms, it wouldn't have shrunk the size of parliament that much. I mean, you could just split it, two houses. <laughs> there you go. Um, but I think this comes down to, you know, the stereotype in Ukraine that all politicians are lazy, corrupt, and, you know, don't have the interests of the voter. But I think shrinking uh, parliament down won't improve that situation. I think focus should be on reforming the political parties in Ukraine so that they better represent what the citizens want. I think it's interesting if you think, I guess, the Liberal Party in times gone by in Australia argued themselves as the small government party or the one that kind of represented that rather than the Labor Party being more of a majority. And obviously that required them to, you know, I guess band with other political parties like the Nationals to gain government and have a coalition. So do, do we think that there would be any benefit from the streamlining of the Rada in terms of actually finding true consensus and, and maybe less division? I feel like the Rada in its current state, they can come to consensus when they want to. And you like, like we saw that in the last parliament, like when it was like national issues of nationals importance, like the parliament would come together and you'd get like the votes for making NATO like part of the constitution. You had overwhelming support for it in the parliament. So I feel like when they need to, they can come together. But it's like every other political system, like you have your everyday politics, which, you know, they can be as petty as you want, whilst, you know, when you need to come together for the benefit of the country, like polit- like the people will or the politicians will. So I think it's important as well, when we talk about bicameral or unicameral uh, systems of government, I think bicameral being a dual house system like we have in Australia or, or other Commonwealth nations, or a unicameral, which is a single house like the Rada in Ukraine, um, is that a lot of the types of balancing that a lot of people talk about informally in, in, I guess, Western countries that are bicameral can't really happen. So there's a lot of, the, a lot of the time we have this argument that some people might vote for in the lower house, a particular preferred party and then balance the, the upper house with some kind of other party in the case of Australia that, you know, balances the decision making. Unfortunately, uh, there's a challenge when it comes to a, a unicameral government or structure where there's the idea that effectively, there's one one area where everyone can can vote from. So I guess yeah, the reality of the challenge here is that in a unicameral government, you have a potential for a particular party to gain a full majority, a real actual majority, and not have any oversight above it aside from the provisions of the constitution around the president. Um, and is that healthy when you're reducing the numbers of that particular parliament, therefore reducing the overall physical numbers you need? in that other to get that majority is that a challenge and a risk going forward yeah and i think like from an australian perspective the party that wins government very rarely has a majority in the senate and therefore they always need to negotiate with other parties and i think it acts as quite a good um break on some of their more like excessive policies because usually they'll be either watered down or they just won't pass at all if it's not you know for the benefit of the country, in a sense. Or you can have deadlock, like in the United States. Yes, yeah. both sides of that. Uh, but then I guess is the other side of this, and, and I often have my own thoughts about the semi-presidential system in general, the idea that you have a president and and, and a prime minister at the same time. Um, does that actually cause... Yeah, is, is there enough check and balance in that process to not require 
to not worry about that kind of dual house thing. There is that, but I feel like, especially since the rise of more bipartisan, more partisan politics, I feel like the separations of power kind of break down when one when people in you know amongst these different branches of government go to support their own party regardless. So it reminds me of like Mitch McConnell. He said that the Senate's position in the Donald Trump's impeachment would be the White House's position. And that was based on obviously they're in the same party. But when you're talking about different branches of governments, that shouldn't have been the case because uh, you know, the, the legislative legislative branch shouldn't be negotiating with the executive branch when it comes to impeachments. So, I feel like it could work, but if they're all in the same party, then they're all going to push for the same um, agenda. But I think, Nathan, what you're saying, it comes to the should. It talks about norms and best practice and things like that. And, I mean, you could argue, for example, that the British style of government over the Canadian style of government has quite deficiencies in the fact that the, the upper houses aren't elected, they're appointed. Um, and appointed for a very long period of time, which in you know, viewed from a objective Western lens is a, it's probably a bit questionable. It's just historical. Yeah. That said, I mean, they don't have parliaments that, you know, openly talk about abusing it, nor do they have parliaments where people have fisticuffs mm. and have fights in the <laughs> middle of parliament. So the other is a bit different that way. And that, th- does that have any bearing or is that being a little bit too hypocritical on our part, looking from the West and then judging it in that way? I think the thing is, is that like in the UK and Canada, they have, uh, They've come from a system where it's already been, like, tried and tested and it sort of works in a sense. Or, like, um, people that are appointed and voted in, they're playing by the rules, really. But, um, like, Canada's parliament has been there for, I think, almost 100 years. The UK's for even longer. But, like, Ukraine, it's only come out from a communist state uh, just under 30 years ago. And that wasn't a fair system. And this is kind of just working off that unfair system. So, I think it's- um, there's like a big difference between having experience in terms of um, how to run the government or like the way it's run to not having experience at all. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that's fair um, to say that, you know, it's a younger it's a younger government. Um, you know, there might be a need for tweaking. But then probably the counter argument to that, I guess, just being devil's advocate again is- is changes to a parliament really, should that really be a priority? Should that not be constant when a country's under siege and under a wartime footing? Um, does that make sense or is it the right time? Is there like any formula, do you guys reckon, that like maybe could help determine like the number of seats that you should have in a parliament? Yeah, so there's a formula called the Tikapara formula, which states that a nation's parliament should have a number of seats equal to the cube root of its population. So, in terms of Ukraine, it should have 348 seats. And looking at other countries, for example, Australia currently has 227, but we should technically have 299. The US has 535, and it should have 692. The UK almost has 1,500 members in parliament, and it should only have just over 400. So, there's a big difference in what the UK has. Um, In my opinion, if you're having like a a one-chamber parliament, it's better to have more because then your party is less likely to have uh, like a super majority or even a majority in a sense. And so, it's a lot harder to um, win an election and breeze through all your laws, right? But in a two-party system, uh, sorry, in a in a two-chamber system, um, 
it sort of works out having a smaller chamber because you still have another house to go through, really. That's how I see it. And it goes back to, I guess, the question, is the semi-presidential system in Ukraine, comparing to, I guess, our Westminster system, is that enough of a check and balance? And, and arguably, it could. if the president and his party is in, then no, it's not. You know, they could potentially, like you're saying, if they reduce the majorities um, and reduce the overall number, then it would be a lot easier to push through your agenda. In saying that, Zelensky is the only president so far to have a majority in parliament at all. Usually the presidential party uh, is the largest faction in parliament, but well, like, he he needs to. F- they need to form a coalition to actually pass legislation. So yeah. I think it's a new experience for Ukraine having one party. But his, like, his party, even though it's a majority officially, it's not even, it can't even like be itself a majority because only, uh, for example, they recently had a, a vote to vote in the en- uh, Minister for Energy and they only got a hundred and I think just over 170 votes from Zelensky's party, but he almost has 300. Yes, 245. Yeah, he has 245. And uh, I think a quarter of his party didn't even vote for them. So, even his own party doesn't have unity. That said, I mean, looking at it from the other side, I mean, does, is is it true that that's not going to be a trend? Is that really just an exception to the rule that Zelensky got that? Because if we look at other governments and mature democracies around the world, Generally, there are sort of major parties and minor parties. And perhaps if you consider the, you know, I guess the early years of Ukrainian independence through the 90s, obviously forming, you know, learning learning democracy and practicing democracy, and then obviously some of the push and pulls that have happened geopolitically between the Western and, and Russia around Ukraine over that time up until 2010, or I guess up until 2014, um, perhaps, you know, this is the start of a trend where you're all still seeing you know, two major dominant parties and that ability for there to be fractions and factions will will kind of diminish and, and might cause problems. Yeah, that's a possibility. Or Ukraine will go down the path of Central Europe where you have the grand coalition strategy of, like, Germany. But I still, considering how partisan Ukrainian politics is, I don't feel they'll be able to form grand coalitions. And it still goes back, is this the right time? I always in the forget, middle of a war. I always forget that that like little caveat that they're in the middle of a war so you know comparing they've to done it they've done such a good job at hiding the fact that they're at war for the you majority mean the russian government <laughs> yeah. no even in ukraine like you walk around downtown cave you like you can hardly tell there's a war on it's more like if you pay attention to the news it's there see what happens wait when's it so they've got one more vote left and for this bill to pass they need a constitutional majority of 300 and so, if Zelensky's whole party votes for it, he's still short. And so far, the only political party that's come out is the pro-Russian For Life Party, which only currently controls 44 seats. So, they're still short. And all the other political parties have come out against. But considering Zelensky's recent actions, I don't think the pro-Russian party is going to be out in support of any of his initiatives in the near future. Okay. Fair point. Which brings us to our next story. Yeah. What what are his recent actions there? Yeah. So, Nathan, on February the 2nd, uh, President Zelensky enacted the decision of the National Security and Defense Council to impose sanctions against television channels News 1, Zik, and 112 Ukraine, as well as their owner, Taras Kozak, who is actually an MP for the opposition um, party for life. 
that was mentioned earlier. The sanctions, among other things, revoked the licensees, uh, licenses of these pro-Russian TV channels. Um, and the broadcasting of those channels was blocked as of morning February 3. So it's been enacted and actually practically enacted very quickly. Um, and I guess generally as, as a reaction to this, um, I think a lot of, uh, Western outlets have seen the positives because of the abuses of those channels and I guess political interference, particularly from, um, from uh, Taras Kozak and other MPs. But um, one of the interesting kind of uh, outspoken comments um, is from David Stiluk, who was the head of the European program at the Prague-based European Values Centre for Security Policy. And he actually was former spokesman to the EU delegation in Ukraine. And he says that all those who are following the situation in Ukraine have no doubt about the role of Mr. Medvedchuk and his TV channels. It's a well-known fact that these are promoting pro-Russian agenda and are attacking the pillars of Ukrainian statehood and Ukrainian independence. So from the point of the national security decision, this decision is logical and understandable. Um, and I guess from that, I guess what does everyone think about these laws and particularly how swiftly they were introduced? I think it's a very good decision considering how like cancerous these channels have been on Ukraine's body politic. And I think... Um, the fact that it's taken five years to, like, have them, like, banned or neutered is, you know, it should have been done at the start of the war when, it, you know, they were actively trying to discredit Ukraine in its war effort against Russia. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's different because here in the West we see a lot of channels that are, like, labelled as propaganda, but it's, it's, it's a different thing when you actually see uh, channels like these ones actually try to undermine... Um, you know, the independence or um, uh, the legitimacy of the countries that they operate in. So, it's a whole new level compared to some of the things we're used to in, um, like in Australia. Yeah. And I guess it's 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 the political ownership as well, like having, mm-hmm. you know, the ties to political MPs in Ukraine that you know, are obviously very openly anti-Ukrainian. Well, yeah. And we should yeah. say that Pan Medvedchuk, his daughter's godfather is Putin. Like, it shows you how closely tied he is to Russia mm. and that he's basically seen as as Putin's point man in Ukraine. And the fact that he's a member of parliament is crazy. And look, I, mean, I guess I equate it to, there's a lot of questions around Rupert Murdoch and mm-hmm. rightly there's some in, in investigations, possibly a royal commission that might get its legs or not. But, you know, I think it's bad enough when you have, I guess, a very powerful media that's kind of unchecked. The other question is, imagine if Rupert Murdoch was also a member of parliament, mm. you know, advancing his agenda politically in the parliament and also having a TV station to back him up. I think that would be even more of a, a reason to be concerned. Yeah, or if he and his best friends to someone who's a foreign leader, like it would be- Xi Jinping. A, yeah, exactly. Well, that would be the example for Australia. Um, well, Murdoch, his best friends are a lot of world leaders. That's true. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, when we're looking at these different companies and their ownership, do you think it would be um, worthwhile kind of uh, demonopolizing the ownership of these companies and breaking them up? And kind of spreading their inf- spreading the the editorial influence that they have, or do you think it's the the banning is probably the best way to go? It's not really monopolized because they don't have a monopoly. I, I think like it means oligarchic control. I think I think it more means like I meant like the their ownership, like that. What's his name again? <laughs> yeah, so he has a monopoly on those particular channels. If that's that's what I mean, like he has that influence. Whereas if if the government can break up his ownership of it, well, then there might be a, a shift in 
their uh, editorial process and their um, their broadcasting. There was an attempt recently to try and fine or sanction one of Medvedchuk's channels, but because they weren't actually taken off the airways, they basically came out and said that it was, you know, an attack on free speech. So I think that's why they acted so fast because his decree was like published at like 11 p.m. and then like they were off the air by midnight. Like it shows you how fast they acted. Yeah, but I, but I think as well, I think the thing to remember here, as much as we'd like to sort of go, well, oh, this is a little bit sanctioning of free speech or whatever you want to call it, would be the counter argument. The thing to remember um, is this isn't a situation where there's a channel that broadcasts views we don't like in a normal situation where a country's sovereignty isn't under threat as trying to influence the political conversation and the pers- the discussion in the population. This is a situation where the Ministry of Defence of Ukraine has identified a national security risk yep. that's undermining a physical war and a physical invasion against the country. Um, and it's a little bit like the only thing I can equate it to from a Western sense perhaps is if you look at US during the Cold War, it's not like they would allow Soviet you know, influenced channels to run on American TV. Mm-hmm. Um, they would revoke those licences and... You know, whether it's free speech or not, they would see it as a national security and, you know, a right of the country to be able to have control its licensing, you know, regardless, you know. So, I think that's... Yeah, or even like post 9-11, they wouldn't be allowing pro-Al-Qaeda, like, channels to, to run. So, yeah. Yeah, and we're not even talking about censoring media on the internet. We're talking about, like, 24-7 channels yeah. Yeah. broadcast with Ukrainian licenses to dispel you know, the idea of Ukrainian sovereignty, which is scary. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention up, you, uh, I think it was Alexa, you mentioned that um, why hadn't this been introduced earlier on in the war? And so, uh, in the quote here, it said that the situation the situation here may not be clear cut. Detector Media has pointed out that Ukraine's law on sanctions appear, uh, Ukraine's law on sanctions does not appear to envisage Envisage sanctions being imposed on a Ukrainian citizen unless they fall under the category of individuals who engage in terrorist attacks. Back in 20, December 2020, former President Petro Poroshenko was asked why he had not imposed sanctions against Medvedchuk and the media under his control, as had been proposed in a Verkhovna Rada resolution passed in October 2018. Poroshenko cited both the above-mentioned law which is the sanction law, law and sanctions, and Ukraine's constitution as prohibiting the application of sanctions against Ukrainian citizens. So Poroshenko had a different view because I think he saw that there would be uh, some sort of conflict with this and so it might be revoked. And so I think I think he saw it as there was no point because it was most likely to get revoked. Well, Zelensky has, like, I think the National Security Defense Council's decision is based off the terrorism law. So they've obviously found something now that they can pin him, like they, they're confident to pin it on him. Yes. Um, uh, we should also mention that the US has come out in support of these sanctions to provide support to Ukraine's integrity. And of course, we all know freedom of speech is limited. Like this, there are extents to which you, uh, your freedom is no longer, uh, your, your speech is no longer protected. Um, and, you know, there's there's been cases in America. I know America gives leniency, but like a common one is you can't yell fire in a crowded theatre. Um, there are, I know we have anti-hate laws here, something about hate speech in Australia. There's certain things you can't do to promote uh, hate speech. So, there are... Uh, there are boundaries, and if the defence agency is stepping in, well, then obviously it's something's crossed one of those boundaries. Um, I guess the 
the litmus test for a lot of this has to be, um, does it affect the ability for the country to maintain its sovereignty? Does it have some sort of um, effect against the rule of law of a particular country? Is it dispelling factual information and it's completely you know, unfactual? I mean, whether you sit on either side of the current social media landscape, I mean, there obviously was the band the ban of uh, Donald Trump's Twitter account and Facebook accounts, which could be seen as censoring free speech to some degree. But, you know, you have to balance that against the authority level of the person and the, or the implied authority of the person, whether that's several TV channels broadcasting officially in Ukraine, yep. as opposed to a social media website in the corner that could be considered less authoritative. Um, that's the kind of thing that matters. At the end of the day, if, that's, uh, if, if the argument is that Trump was harming national like safety of the country, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the free elections and fair elections. The same thing can be said. If this if this content was undermining Ukrainian sovereignty, then I think there's a fair argument to be made that there was some right to be able to revoke those licenses. True, but then I wonder like people that defended um the storming of the Capitol, um because there have been some, um, I wonder why some of their licenses haven't been revoked. Um, under America. You have to remember that America, Trump so. was kicked off a private platform while yeah, those true. like those companies that supported him were operating, you know, under America's licensing system and obviously they haven't breached any of their licensing terms, so therefore they can't be taken off air. While Trump, you know, he's at the mercy of the Twitter. private company that like that he's yeah. on. Yeah. yeah, and you're right. That's a very big distinction. We're talking about government censure versus corporate. But I think ultimately, um, yeah, there's an interesting overall parallel in terms of, you know, how free speech is being, you know, free speech versus propaganda, fact versus fiction is quite a, you know, quite a story of our times everywhere, not just in Ukraine. In the news this week, a Ukrainian naval tactical group, along with air support, have conducted training exercises with U.S. warships, the USS Porter and the USS Donald Cook in the Black Sea. The training was aimed at maintaining security in the Black Sea and improving the interoperability and compatibility of the crews. This will allow the Ukrainian Navy and the U.S. Navy to carry out joint maritime operations more effectively. IKEA opened its first store in Ukraine on February 1st. The store is located in the Kiev Blockbuster Mall. The store is the first for IKEA in the southeastern European region and is built in a smaller format to its traditional store to make it more accessible for inner city residents. Ukraine's Vokhovna Rada has voted to impose sanctions on Nicaragua over its continued refusal to close its honorary consulate in Crimea. Nicaragua's appointed honorary consul has also been sentenced to 13 years in prison for encroaching on Ukraine's territorial integrity. Ukraine attempted to peacefully resolve the dispute, but Nicaragua ignored all requests. The country is also one of the few nations in the world that regularly do not vote in UN resolutions initiated by Ukraine to recognize Russia as an occupying power due to the annexation of Crimea. The last statue of Lenin on public land in Ukraine has been demolished by unknown persons. It had stood in the village of Steri Toryaner in Odessa Oblast. Its removal brings to the end the so-called Lenin Fall that has been taking place in Ukraine since 1991. Now, the only statues remaining in Ukraine are in the Russian-occupied territories. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.